name is Asia Essex, and welcome to Footage Not Found, Indiana University Cinema's podcast dedicated to contextualizing and filling your cinematic gaps. On this very special episode, we have founding IU Cinema director John Vickers on to discuss his pick for his Vickers Pick series at the IU Cinema, Hirokazu Koreeda's 1995 film, Maboroshi, as well as discussing the overall filmography of Hirokazu Koreeda, as well as his passion for films and his overall viewpoint on life. My name is John Vickers, founding director emeritus of the Indiana University Cinema, as well as a founder of two other cinemas in the Midwest, the Browning Cinema at the DeBartolo Performing Arts Center at the University of Notre Dame and the Vickers Theater in Three Oaks, Michigan. It brings me a lot of pleasure to say, finally, welcome, John, to this podcast. (laughs) Thank you. Just a little prehistory. I don't know. This is probably back in 2017. I had bugged John about relaunching the IU Cinema podcast after kind of gone on an extended hiatus or cancellation or whatever (laughs) uh, when the original two hosts had stepped away and John so graciously said sure go ahead do it gave very little oversight to it Uh, me and Elizabeth did it and then it was John's idea to re-resurrect it uh, when the pandemic happened in 2020 and it's been going ever since so the irony is that we've never really with one minor exception been able to get John actually on this podcast see but it's flourished without me I just say that as a fan of the original podcast, you were on quite frequently, and I just found it kind of funny that we could never actually get you on. <laughs> I, I think it was because Andy and Jason put a lot more pressure on me than, than you did, so, so thank you for that. <laughs> yes, I didn't, want, I didn't want to twist your arm too hard, but now you are retired from the cinema, <laughs> and so now we can get you because you're on your... Uh, you're in your golden years? Is that what we're going to call it? <laughs> I guess we can call it that. Yeah, uh, yeah I'm in my sunset years. Yes. <laughs> um, no, yeah, I'll, I'll talk about film just about any chance I can get now. And that's why we love you. Yeah, so thanks. we are here specifically to talk about the director, uh, Hirokazu Koreeda, because for your Vickers Picks, is it Vickers Picks or is it Vix Picks? Um, I think it's uh, formally John Vickers Pick. John Vickers Picks. Oh, I think informally we always call them Vicks Picks. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and you will be uh, screening the film, uh, the 1992? About 95. 95. Yeah. 95 film. Maboroshi. And so before we get to your history with Hirokazu Koreeda, because look, this is the probably the only time I'm ever going to get you on this podcast. And I know you are very humble and don't like to talk about yourself as often as, you know, as everyone would want you to. But. You did mention some other cinemas that you had helped start, and I would say uh, the John Vickers Pick series have been things that would play previously at some you know early cinemas that you helped start. And so I'm just kind of curious, like, could you give the audience some background on like your pre IU cinema history, just like a little bit? Sure, I'll, I'll try to make it brief. Um, I have a manufacturing background and a civil engineering degree, uh, but in 1993, our small town theater, what used to be called the Lee Theater. Uh, which had been closed for about 10 years, went up for sale. And by the end of the week, my wife Jennifer and I were the owners of what used to be the Lee Theater. And we had this uh, very naive vision of uh, opening a little art house cinema in the small town of less than 2,000 people. And living upstairs because there was an apartment in the old projection room, building it out, showing great films, living a bohemian lifestyle, and and you know just bringing culture to our, our area. And By the time we finished restoring the theater two and a half years later, we had one child and another child on the way. 
And the idea of this bohemian lifestyle kind of went away, but we were still you know, very determined to open an art cinema uh, in our small town because we would drive to Chicago to see art films. And so uh, we opened the Vickers Theater in June of 1996, ran it as a hobby business. I kept my day job in manufacturing with my brothers. In 2004, the opportunity came to open at the University of Notre Dame, the Browning Cinema. So I left my day job, kept our hobby theater and business, which had now expanded to five nights a week, and went to Notre Dame to open this, uh, this beautiful cinema there on campus. Uh, so in 2004, we opened the Browning Cinema in September, and I was the founding director of that cinema, but also became managing director of the full arts facility of five uh, performance venues. An amazing experience, but uh, long story short, in 2010, I left Notre Dame to come to Indiana University to open the Indiana University Cinema. And I was drawn to IU from Notre Dame because of the vision of, of the president, uh, President Michael McRobbie, who really wanted to make this be considered one of the best in the country, not only in the facility, but he had ambitions for the program. And and that enthusiasm really, um, he knew how to hook me. And, uh, and I was lucky enough to get the job and never took it for granted. I, I, this was one of the best opportunities in the world for me uh, to open this cinema on campus. As someone who I would probably call currently what I do outside of the ice cinema as like a hobbyist theater, you don't have, do you have it like a formal background in both film curation or arts administration? Or is it just something that you have learned along the way? Yeah, I have no formal background in either. Um, my experience or my knowledge in film is experiential. And, uh, but I am an entrepreneur. I've been an entrepreneur all my life. Opening any business is entrepreneurial. And I think uh, even a university cinema, running a university cinema, even though it's rooted in uh, academia, you can still be very entrepreneurial. I've never considered myself an artist, but I do consider myself a creative person. And uh, curation is a, a creative act. And it's rooted in research and passion and, you know, many other things, but it's definitely a creative act. And so I've, I think I've combined the creativity that was in me but never really flourished in the past with my entrepreneurial spirit. And, and I think I've been able to, you know, use that in good ways in the three programs that I opened. Let's go back just like slightly further and I promise we'll get to Corina. <laughs> um, where do you think your passion for cinema comes from? Like what is your relationship with film and like watching movies and then, you know, starting to learn how to curate them and like what is your origin story? Did you fall into a radioactive vat of movies <laughs> one day <laughs> and um, decide <laughs> inside it was time? Yeah, I, you know, I don't know exactly where it started, Asia, but I, I was known in our small town as the guy who loved the, the weird movies. Um, so the video stores, um, I would be the one renting the independent films, the, um, the foreign language films, and maybe the only one in some, you know, some of those cases. No, I just, I had a love for films. It did uh, go back to the early universal monster movies, but I don't have any one moment that really locked me into becoming a cinephile, but I always had a love of movies and it was the storytelling. It was the immersion, it, you know, it was a lot of things. So, but there's not a single moment that really locked me in, I don't think. And my wife's an artist and, and so, um, you know, she exposed me to things in the arts that I may not have been exposed to. And the more independent and international films I saw, the more I became interested in different uh, art forms as well. Uh, I was just exposed to more, I think. So we would often drive into Chicago to the Music Box or the Gene Siskel Film Center when it opened or uh, the old Fine Arts Theater on Michigan Avenue. And 
you know, we would try to take in one or two or three movies in a day and then drive back home, uh, which our town was about an hour from downtown Chicago. So the passion and the love for movies continued to grow and, and for the types of films we wanted to show in an art cinema continued to grow as well. So yeah, it was all very, very organic for me. You're coming to this organically. So then how do you come to uh, Corey Ada as a creative? Like when are you, when are you first hearing about him in the nineties and like, are you programming uh, his films at the Vickers theater? I'm just kind of curious, like where this sure. is from, because I just want to give a little context. I didn't know anything about Hirokazu Koreeda until I would say on a clockwork-like basis in the IU Cinema programming, you would always program one of his films whenever they were available to be screened for the public every semester. And so I didn't know this was a person who existed as someone who is into Japanese cinema in like a big way. It was an eye-opening experience uh, for me. So I'm curious, like, where does, where is this origin story? Sure. So even though the film was made in 1995, um, it actually wasn't released into the U.S. theaters until late uh, 1996. And we booked the film. We, we opened the film on March 7th, 1997. Um, and it was a week before it opened in Chicago. So this film, it was a very small release from Milestone Films. Um, I, I recently spoke to Dennis Doris about the release. And it was only four 35-millimeter film prints traveling the country. So, so you think of a major uh, theatrical, big theatrical release might play in 3,500 screens across the states. This had four 35-millimeter prints, so it's a very small film. We found out about the film from New York Times reviews. I mean, we, we always would read the trades and we would read reviews. And we also had trusted uh, Milestone Films because we had screened two or three of their films uh, since we had opened. Uh, by the time we screened Mabarossi in March, we were open almost a year. And I think we had a level of trust in Milestone and their work. We didn't get to see a screener, even though at that time there were screeners sometimes available on VHS. Um, but, but for this film, we didn't have a screener. But we trusted Milestone, and I trusted the reviews I'd read, and uh, absolutely was not disappointed. And I guess to, to get back to an earlier question uh, you alluded to, um, I wanted to screen this film for the John Vickers picks because in, in some ways, Corieta and myself are contemporaries. He started as a narrative filmmaker around the time I started as an exhibitor. And as you mentioned, um, you know, we programmed or I programmed uh, his films every chance I, I could get. I saw his films in festivals every chance I could get. So I think I've only missed three of his films on the big screen. Um, so I've I've seen most of his work the way it should be seen. And I just, I feel like I've, you know, I've not grown up with this filmmaker, but, you know, we, we had parallel tracks, if you will. And I, and I did become, in my own way, a champion of his because I, I love the work so much. This, it was a power, powerful film for me to screen, uh, my wife and I to screen in the Vickers Theater in 1997. It struck me to where I wanted to screen everything of his that we could following that. For me, the thing about Corietta that I've found so striking is that I am very prone to narratives about, and, you know, I'm very prone to narratives about, like, found family or about family dynamics or, like, you know, reconnecting with family or connecting with family where people are bad at talking about things and, like, you know, it's this, like, forceful you know, this painful extraction of emotions over a long period of time. I would say that's something that is like very, I'm very much drawn to. And also like the idea that he takes his time telling these stories, but they are not overwrought. I would never say that they were slow in any stretch of the imagination, but there is a lot of 
before the points in these movies where the emotions get to the point where people say them out loud you can read them on everyone's face even though they're trying to like keep them like deep under the surface and like that's something that I'm drawn to by Zanera's, especially two of his most recent three films, Shoplifters and Broker, which is like very much about, you know, assembled, non-traditional families. And so I'm just kind of curious, what is the thing that has you keep coming back outside of, you know, the idea of like following an artist and watching them grow and then like, you know, being attracted to what they do and, you know, obviously having the picking an artist that the work continues to grow and get better. Like, what is the thing that like has you coming back to him? He has an expansive view of what family is, and, and that's, I, I really love the idea of being far beyond this nuclear family, and you know, family can be strangers who come into your lives and then become part of your lives, and, and I, I do love that about his work, and, and family plays a role in, in most of his films. Um, you know, even in the film Nobody Knows, where the mother is absent much of the time and the father is absolutely absent. Yeah, the, the kids form this bond and a familial bond that most kids don't have. I mean, they're taking care of themselves. And yeah, family's critically important to his work. And, and so I, I do love that about it. And I, again, I love how um, it can grow beyond what's normal. From Abaroshi, I, I loved, I, I remember two things. Uh, you know, I, I want to say that, you know, I programmed this film for the picks um, after not seeing it since 1997. And I've seen it since, you know, after I chose it. Um, and so I, I kind of questioned whether it would be the same film for me. And, and I saw it when my children were very young and, and, you know, young children play a part in this film. But I, I don't think, I mean, it's actually more powerful for me now than it was then. And, and I think part of it is because as you age, you also uh, have people who are close to you that pass and, and move on. And, and, you know, we've also known people in the circumstances of, the passing of one of the main characters in this film, or they're the subject of a lot of the loss uh, without saying too much. And so, so I think it's actually much more relevant and moving for me now, 25 years later than it was back then. But what I remember striking me about this film, one of the things anyway, is the way it took its time, uh, the way that there's um, an eventual acceptance to a person's place. And, you know, everybody's trying to grow and move forward in this film and, and in life, I guess. But there comes a point where there's an acceptance. And, and, and I've been trying to pinpoint that on, uh, for Corrieta, whether it's rooted in Buddhism or what it's rooted in, because all of the Four Noble Truths have to do with suffering and an acknowledgement of suffering and eventually trying to get beyond the suffering. And the human condition has a lot of suffering. And I love the way that Corrieta is able to treat this. And, you know, characters in all of his films, you know, there's suffering involved, you know, in everybody's story. They all get beyond that. They all, you know, learn some form of acceptance and uh, find a way to move forward. And, and so I really remember that about this film. Um, I'm, I guess I'm going to get emotional a little bit, you know, thinking about it. Um, I also remember just the beauty of it. This film was shot in, in all natural light. And in reading some recent, recently reading some interviews from the time, of course, it was very intentional. Uh, but even the costume designer designed costumes specifically to be shot in natural light. And, and there's such a beauty in this film. And I think that natural light uh, helps communicate the natural beauty of the natural world in many ways. And, you know, Corrieta finds beauty in everyday objects, everyday things, everyday uh, actions. Uh, like so many other great filmmakers I adore, like Abbas Kiarostami. So, 
you know, I, I think, you know, finding beauty in the everyday is, is another thing that I remember about uh, Corriere's work and Mabarossi in particular. Funny enough, um, I mean, this film is so beautiful, but this is the only film that he shot in natural light. And I have no idea. Well, completely in natural light, I, I should say. So it's interesting. Um, and, and light was a really big part of the story. In fact, the translation of the full title at least of the novel. I'm sorry, this is based on a short story, not a novel. Uh, Maburoshi no Hikari, uh, which translates into uh, phantasmic light or a trick of the light. And so light was very important to, uh, to Corrieta. And I also wrote down a, a quote, if you don't mind me reading. Please, and, I, yes. um, and this is Corrieta's words, uh, but he envisioned this film being, quote, a document of light and shadows which flicker inside a woman. And so again, you know, light plays a big part of this film maybe more so than many of his other films. Yeah, I mean, it's so, I mean, I find it interesting because his career before he was a narrative filmmaker is that he was a documentarian. Right. Um, And so obviously it seems like a very natural transition to go from documentary to, you know, something I wouldn't call cinema verite, but something that is relying on like naturalistic light. But you saying that like it's a document of like light and shadow inside of a woman. Yeah. it makes a lot of sense that he'd be interested in this because I do find his films to be documents like meaning like there's the I'm not saying he's removed from them at all but it does seem as if like you are examining portraits of people like sure. throughout these uh, movies it's I think that is what I'm getting at they are so much about the people and so much less about the circumstance yeah um, even though the circumstance plays a large part into their lives like you can't talk about shoplifters without without talking about the circumstance of the characters and you know things like that yeah yeah his film he is rooted in documentary filmmaking uh his first three or four or five films were all documentaries and i've seen none of them i I wish i i have but i've i've been thinking about his characters a lot and i've been thinking about the calmness in his films and um he seems to um be non-judgmental of of his characters right and it seems like there's uh there's an empathy for all of his characters. It seems like he loves all of his characters, even though some of them are doing bad things or making bad decisions. There's a, there's a tone and there's a, there's a calmness to things. And things you know, might play out the way they should, and sometimes things don't end well, but there's still a, a calmness. The, the, there's a lack of anxiety, it seems, around most of, unless it's internal. Um, but yeah, I, I just kind of love that calmness that the films bring. Yeah, well, it's that veneer that I was talking about. I think in a lot of these films, these people are very eternally anxious, but the idea is that a majority of his characters, I would say, are bad at conveying their emotions, but the one place that they can't hide the conveyances on their face, right. and while they are trying not to crack, you can, still see, you can still see it. I'm reminded of, it's interesting when he literalizes that, I, I won't get into too much detail about his new film, Broker, because I think everyone should have a chance to see it with fresh eyes and ears. There's a particular moment in the film where two characters are talking on a train and they're relaying this idea of like their desires and their wants, specifically one who had a more traditional family and lost it. is talking to another character. And then at one point they say like, let's do that. And then they were like, wait, what did you say? And then they just completely ignore it. Like they're like, right. actually I didn't say anything. And it's that little crack that like you see that it's like, it's devastating. It's like yeah. <laughs> the calmness. I think the, the, the calmness serves 
that it doesn't have to be this big bombastic explosion of emotions, which I love in film, but like it doesn't have to be that once everything has this crystalline lake smooth surface, the moment you toss a pebble into it, it ripples completely outward and it's like this dazzling effect. Yeah. Um, Yeah. His movies make me very emotional as Mm. a queer woman who is constantly uh, searching for that idea of a non-traditional family and also like people in his films you know things like uh still walking people having these conversations with each other where no one wants to say the thing that they want i I think it's kind of another thing i like about his films like the refusal to acknowledge your desire yeah 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 yeah. you know many of the films not all of the films are are sparse or condensed in dialogue and maburoshi is you know relatively sparse in dialogue. But one of the things that I like, whether they, they have a lot of dialogue or not, he, he never, at least from what I remember of the, some of the films, he never really shows too much or says too much. And I think he's a really great craftsman, if you will, uh, in, in the language, because you know he's, he's conveying things, he's moving things along. Uh, one of the things that I think about is his way of communicating passage of time. And in Amaburoshi, there are some fades to black where that you create some chapters, but there are little subtle things that he does, like uh, there's a newly painted bicycle, and later we see that bicycle, and it's, it's scuffed up, and it's faded, and we know that time has passed. And he's, he's used that same kind of technique in uh, nobody knows where freshly painted fingernails later are scuffed and outgrown. And we know that, and, and we've never been told that time has passed, but we know now that time has passed after we see that. And so he's he's very keen at pointing these little subtle details out for us as viewers. And, and it doesn't dumb anything down, which is really beautiful. I, I mean, I love it when the visual language can can move things forward without saying it. I mean, it's the old cinematic truth, show, don't tell. And obviously, I love when people just tell and you can do it in very entertaining ways. I mean, I don't know. It's one of those things where I didn't do a ton of research. I would be curious to see who his biggest influences are as as a director. Yeah, there's there's a lot of comparisons, surface comparisons to Ozu, but he, he doesn't accept that. Which I don't think he should because I'm not, once again, I'm also not an Ozu expert, but for what I have seen... You know, it would. <laughs> I, I struggle for a comparison here, but it, it's you said it's surface level, right? Like just because something is like static or deliberate, sure, can't, can't compare everything to Ozu. Yeah. <laughs> there are some shots in this film where I mean, there's a there's prominent tea kettles or things in the foreground that that do maybe play an ode to Ozu, sure, yeah. but but uh, Koreeda himself prefers a comparison to Mikio Naruse. I don't know if you know. Which I don't know if I know by name. Brilliant filmmaker. I've only seen uh, some of his silent films. I haven't seen his, his talkies, and I don't remember him well enough to compare now to Koreeda. But I, I did read an interv- interview where he was really taken by the films of Hao Shoshen, and I think even to the, the point where Hao Shoshen had seen some of his documentaries and told him if you're ever ready to make a, a, a narrative feature that he could help him. And I think there was some communication there. I don't think his films are direct for me comparisons to uh, somebody like Kiristami, but they have a lot of similar traits. And and I think maybe that's partially because Kiristami came out of documentary work as well. And um, Kiristami takes his time. He has some similar traits to Corrieta. You know, their films are very different for me, but but there are also similarities. And it's interestingly enough that Corrieta's last two films, Broker, which you've seen, as well as The Truth, which neither of us have seen, 
were filmed outside of Japan. And and uh, Kiristami's late career, he started filming outside of Japan. And yeah, it's interesting to think about some of those parallels between the two of them. Well, I want to both put a pin and also continue on a thought. You just brought up a thing that I wanted to talk about. You brought up two things. One of them I'm putting a pin in, which is this idea of influence, because I want to talk about Broker in slightly more detail and some possible influences on that film. But you also brought up the idea of people, of a director, like branching outside of, you know, even outside of the idea of auteur theory and like flourishes and like thematic content they come back to, the idea of these like outlying pieces of work in their film. And I would say, while I have not seen all of Coriata's films, I would say two of which I have seen that I feel are outlying films, and one of which neither of us seen, which you mentioned, The Truth, which does seem like an outlying film in his filmography, but I don't know what the content of the film is exactly, are the films Airdahl in The Third Murder. Yes. Um, and for those who aren't familiar with either of these films, we've been talking a lot about what Coriata's films invoke and how, you know, the stillness of them and uh, the themes of, like, found family and family but they all share the commonality of like familial dramas or dramas or like comedy or you know right. what have you and Airdal is essentially some sort of it's not Pinocchio it's a different um folktale or fairy tale it's based on but the idea of an inanimate object that is you know human like coming to life in the third murder which is a David Fincher-esque uh, <laughs> um, serial killer movie. Um, and these are both outlying things in their filmography. And I'd just be kind of curious to hear, like, as you're following this person's career, when someone zags like that, Airdahl, the first of these two movies, like, what were your thoughts upon uh, watching, like, Airdahl for the first time? Which stars yeah. Duna Bay, the first collaboration with Duna Bay. Right. Bay Duna. Yeah, I love that film. We actually, I did a pop-up with an artist, tattoo artist in town not long ago. And I was responsible for curating shorts and pieces of footage and things like that. And actually put the introduction to Air Doll because we had called the pop-up Welcome to the Dollhouse. Okay. Which has many connotations, including obviously being a reference to the Todd Salons film. Sure. Um, but I specifically wanted to put that opening clip of Duna Bay coming to life in Air Doll. So I'm just kind of curious, like, what are your thoughts on that film as like this outlying film in his oeuvre? Yeah, yeah. Well, um, it definitely was an outlier for me, and and it wasn't what I expected. I think I saw it at the Toronto Film Festival. And I remember walking away a little curious as to why um, Corrieta made this film. I mean, it is an outlier. Um, But then, you know, in its its own ways, it is, it's not sensationalizing the subject. It is, you know, it is, has its calm moments. It has a lot of the traits of a Corrieta film. I I just I was not expecting that. You know, I can recall thinking, you know, this isn't one of my favorites of his, but I think I've thought about it more and and I wish I could see it. I haven't seen it since, you know, that time before it opened in theaters. I should see it again uh, because I do know that, you know, this it's a, a sex doll that comes yes, to life. It's an inflatable sex doll that comes to life and in the opening moments of the film before uh she comes to life, you see her being used as a sex doll and then the idea of being like during the day when her, in quotes, owner goes out for the day, she comes to life and has her own autonomous life outside of him and then comes back at night and then resumes being inanimate. And during the day, I mean, she's trying to claim her rights as a woman yes. as well. And and so, yeah, I, I mean, I, I, it's a, I love the concept. And, and I was thinking about this in relation to Lars and the Real Girl. Yeah. Come out around a similar time. Like yeah. A couple of years of each other. A couple of years. That, yeah. that was two years prior. And I was wondering... 
you know, could this be Corrieta's, his take on, uh, you know, a similar theme or a subject? And, you know, I don't know if there's any connection there at all, probably not, but, uh, but it is interesting that they come out within a couple of years of each other. But yeah, I, I, um, I need to revisit the film Asia. Yeah. I, I adore of, of the, what I would call his two outlier films I have seen. I, this is the one that I adore. I find it to be this idea of like affirmation of just becoming exactly what you want. And also kind of like this idea that we brought up earlier, which is, which you, I forget the exact words that you said, but you know, this idea that like life is painful and then you learn from that pain and like you move, you move forward. And it's about a woman essentially like learning. And like I said, it's a Pinocchio-esque narrative of like learning about like the world is painful. It's, but you also do get to experience love and affection and like connection with other people. But taking that pain and like moving forward with it and helping strengthen you, even if you are literally like made out of plastic and at any point can be pricked with the pin deflated. Um, If I can just add to that. Yeah. So, again, I have no idea whether Corrieta is a Buddhist or practices or or even thinks about that in in his films. But again, the, the thought of, you know, there is suffering in this life, but there's also incredible beauty, even though we we all live with pain and you know anxieties there is beauty in these everyday objects and then he he does try to show us those objects in those moments and and so that's what i i think i i really take is yes our 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 lives can be you know messed up or whatever there's still beauty hopefully in all of our lives that if we pay attention and we're good observers it's there for us what's the agony and the ecstasy exactly. my favorite <laughs> concept that i keep coming coming back to you know, joy and pain, sunshine and rain, you know, rubbing up against the idea of like taking pain and moving forward with it. I think that's like an interesting friction. Like one of my favorite quotes that I like jokingly like to tell the tattoo artists in town when I get a tattoo from them and like they say like, oh, you're like a good sit. And I just say it's the quote from Lawrence of Arabia, which is him saying, you know, he's snuffing out the candle with his fingers and that they try to do it and it hurts. And they're like, that bloody hurts. You know, what's the trick? And he says, the trick is not minding that it hurts. Like it always hurts. Sure, (laughs) The trick is just quite simply not minding that it hurts. But I think there's something a little bit healthier worldview wise and more beautiful of the idea of instead of just accepting that something hurts is like, it will hurt, but also think about the joy you will experience later after this, like this too shall pass. Right. Right. I think is a healthier mindset to, go in about these things and then yeah one of the last coriated films you programmed the last two was the third murder which is this detective serial killer movie i remember that one being almost flummoxing for us in the cinema and not in like a way that we thought it was bad it was just kind of those like i think i had the experience of you watching air doll for the first time where i was like it's not one of my favorites but i found it fascinating that this is a subject matter that he was interested in visiting considering i think the movie before I, I can't quite keep the chronology in my head it was probably like father like son I think it was yeah yes. like father like son how did you feel about this you know movie? yeah um I mean similar to Airedale it wasn't one of my favorites for whatever reason I had to show it and um I I don't even know how it did uh critically and it didn't matter I mean I thought there were there were points of the film that were amazing and overall it absolutely wasn't one of my favorites because it was Maybe for me, it was less relatable. And, you know, that's, I guess, what it comes down to me for, you know, any filmmaker who I really appreciate is I need some universi- universality, universality, universi- yeah, I, I mean, I need to be able to relate and, and, 
it was less relatable than many of his other films for me. Yeah, it's the difference between being like stayed and reserved and just being like actually cold, which might actually work to its favor the next time I watch it. Like there's this like stark coldness to it. There was. But at the same time, this is not, I don't think either of us are, you know, condoning someone for not playing the hits. It's more like a, I love it when artists like branch out. Like, you know, I used (laughs) David Fincher as an example to, you know, talk about Third Murder, but every, I remember everyone kind of beating up on him about Mank because it was different than things that he'd been doing. And like, is Mank my favorite David Fincher movie? No, but I appreciate this, like this willingness to like grow and evolve. And like, I'm sure he'll take lessons from making that film, like both philosophically and technically and move on and make something else that'll be, you know, more conducive to whatever his vision is at the time. So, so is that like uh, Darren Aronofsky and the wrestler? Yeah, exactly. Yes. Perfect. Like perfect example. You know, there's successful versions of this idea of like branching outside of your, or in my opinion, which I think I'm an outlier, Darren Aronofsky making uh, Noah, a movie I do legitimately think is good and I enjoy, Uh, (laughs) but I I do enjoy when artists do this. So to take that giant pin I put into the other half of this idea. So, we're talking about influence. In 2018, Shoplifters yes. comes out big, I would say, seminal movie for me and a couple of other people watching that. A sold out crowd at the Ice Cinema, actually. That was the first yes. time I saw it. This film about, you know, shoplifters and people living on the edges of society, you know, destitute and like found family. And then, as he describes it, he makes this sister film. Because unfortunately, the truth gets swallowed up by the novel coronavirus. Uh, it doesn't get as you know as you know as much of a release because it comes out in like July of 2020. Yeah. So it's kind of memory hold, as they like to say. Um, and I look forward to visiting, uh, you know, visiting this movie for the first time. But then, as he calls it, he makes this sister film called Broker. It's very much a sister film because it's very similar, except the idea being like instead of it's you know the destitute. It's like the dregs of society. So like, you know, story centers around an ex-orphan, a broker, an ex-convict. And when I say broker, the story follows uh, these two men who essentially pose as the owners of a baby dropbox facility. I don't, right. I don't know what you would also use. I don't really I think know that's what, a yeah. good term. Yeah. Baby dropbox facility, which are things that also exist in the U.S. It's the kind of the modernized version of people leaving their child on the steps of a right. church. I believe they have them in Indianapolis. Yes, yes. They essentially intercept them and then take those babies and sell them to couples who can't conceive or, you know, for various reasons, want a child of their own and have money. And that is like their leverage. But in this case, uh, the one time that a mother says that they will come back for their child, she actually does come back for a child and she's a sex worker. And as the story progresses, you kind of understand what led her to this, but we won't get into that much detail about that. But what I find fascinating about this movie is that it's very similar territory, but it also does. And, and I, I don't mean this in, in a diminished way, the same way people compare them to Ozu is not filmed in Japan. It is filmed right. in Korea. And it has uh, Song Kang-ho, who you best know from probably many things, but most recently Parasite as right. the father in Parasite. He is the titular broker. And it has a very similar tone. I wouldn't say energy. Parasite obviously has its own very specific energy to it, but it has a very similar tone. Like It's like a funnier movie. Like you, this could, I, I did jokingly say to my friends, like the Coen brothers could make this movie. It would just be a different tone, but it's the same type of subject matter of like the idea of like people trying to get something they desire, like money wise or whatever, and then kind of realizing they want something bigger. But obviously the Coen brothers have like a different 
sort of, you know, make to them when they do things like that. It's like a funnier movie. It's, you know, darker movie. And also I would say in this movie, people actually do say things out loud more than they actually hold them yeah. to it. But I do definitely feel like there is uh, some Bong Joon-ho. Like, I almost feel like he is sure. just a fan of Parasite and decided it's like, well, I'll just not make my version of that. Because, you know, the idea of like a family together that are on the edges of society coming together to essentially commit a, a con or a grift yeah, or whatever. Yeah. And then kind of not, and I'm not leading the movie, but then kind of realizing like maybe there are forces against them that won't allow them to actually uh, allow this type of like happiness to persist. Yeah. So um, I don't know if you felt the same way when watching it, but I, I felt like maybe he was like, he saw Parasite and he was like, great film. Like I'd like to make something similar to that. Yeah, that's an interesting observation. It definitely had some of that feel. Then there were some characters, I guess even the um, folks that are following the story you know, there was some humor in that as well. I was thinking that was maybe a little more grounded, like a, a, a traditional Coriator film, but I guess it really wasn't, you know, now that I'm thinking of it. You know, Coriator, his two non-Japanese films, uh, he's he wrote them both in Japanese, and then he brought them to the actors, and then, then he had them translated into English, French, and then in this case into Korean. But it's interesting to think about, yeah, did that tone and that feel come from the actors? Or did it come from the direction? And I, I don't know the answer to that. Maybe it was some kind of influence from yeah, Bong Joon-ho. It's just interesting because it's not an outlier film. Right, But right. there definitely is a different enough point of view to it that I feel like there is some sort of outside influence on the film. So if that were filmed in Japan, would it have a different feel? I, I don't know. Would it have a different feel? I mean, yeah. this is like, I watched that film in Song Kang-ho, who's like very much the male lead of the film. Yes. And then Duna Bay returns as a character. I won't say what they are. And she does kind of embody the idea of someone who's very bad at saying what they actually want yeah. in, the, in the film. And then Song Kang-ho is kind of doing his very charming, like, Song Kang-ho thing. Where sure. it's just like very affable and funny as a dark sense of humor is kind of disreputable but you can definitely tell has like a heart of gold like right. characters that he has played before uh, yeah, in yeah. the past in like many other films even even though he's a character we shouldn't like we do the whole idea is like when you realize that they have essentially kidnapped a child you're supposed to be like disgusting but the movie doesn't even wait until like you know some sort of like second or third act reveal shortly after you're kind of already beginning to get charmed right. by him <laughs> right yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> which i find which i find just to be this like fascinating character trait because there aren't characters like that to my knowledge like i said i haven't seen every uh Coriata film that exist in his like wide like maybe there yeah. are some exceptions to that like i'm you know there's i would say the exceptions to that like my favorite i think i can say this with some definition my favorite of film is afterlife a movie that sends me into a like positive existential spiral it's essentially people being interviewed right. and then obviously some of them are kind of larger than life and some of the stories they start telling you're like ew and yeah. then later in the movie that's like uh they add context to it and why they chose it and you're like oh okay yeah yeah yeah, yeah. that's as close as he ever kind of comes to playing with that yeah I, I think i mean i think you're right i haven't really thought much about that and some something that i think about and i mean you watch a lot of foreign language films i watch a lot of foreign language films and and I always hope that the films aren't being exoticized for me where, you know, I think about often if this were an English language film, would I like it as much? If the characters were, you know, American actors doing the same thing, would I like it as much? Would I buy into it as much? And so is there a difference between the way Japanese language is delivered versus Korean language? And yeah. And then is there different acting styles? And yeah, that is the only thing that I don't know if 
will ever be solved as far as like the medium of communication in cinema. I've had this conversation so many times with my friends, which is like, one, the thing with foreign film is that we're getting 1% of 1% of what is actually made right. in the world. It just that we get the things that have been heavily curated and have, you know, gone through the miracle of life to break through to get to, to, get to us. And I have accepted that as just reality. And I try my best to reach out and find things that aren't the 1% of the 1%. Sure. Um, but then the other thing is, you know, the thing that we always will struggle with is like, everyone has their own personal criteria of what makes a performance a good performance from an actor or actress. But when it comes to foreign film, I can only really go with my gut instinct as to why, what I'm enjoying and what I'm seeing. And obviously there's cultural context and I'm sure I'm missing sometimes. And, and dialects. Like, and dialects. And like, you know, I only recently within the past couple of years found out that the film Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon is kind of insane to watch if you are a, nat- if you are a native um, Mandarin or, you know, other dialects and Chinese speaker because not everyone in that film is speaking like there's some uh, people are speaking phonetically Mandarin and some people aren't. Okay. And like if you speak that language, it actually sounds crazy like mm. that to me. I would never have picked up on that at a, like, you know, someone compared it to if like a bunch of actors were all asked to do Southern accents and they were doing it to varying degrees <laughs> of success. Sure. I wonder if that movie is uh, August Osage County, a movie I've sadly never seen. But I was wondering if that's what that movie actually is. Yeah. Um, but I don't know if it's a problem that you, that can ever be solved, but I always go in mindfully of like, uh, well, I can only judge this on the basis of, because it is a visual medium. So like right. there are things you, I read body language, you know, I read like, expressions on faces and i have had the experience of being like a, i don't think i've liked that perform- like as in like i said i was like i watched a performance and i'm struggling to remember what the movie was but i was watching a performance of a japanese movie and i was like i was like i don't think that was a good performance like right kind of right. had it kind of like crossed my mind as opposed to just accepting it for sure sure what it is you know it's one of life's great communication <laughs> mysteries yeah. is you know watching a foreign language film and contextualizing everything and having the ear for it and well, that's the beauty of films with sparse dialogue. That, yes. that I mean, if you like the performance, it's because of the acting and the body language and the eyes and, yes. you know, simple, subtle movements. And, yes. Yeah. Yes. I will have us wrap up. Okay. In your final words about Hirokazu Koreeda, what are your final words about Hirokazu Koreeda? And if you had to tell the audience to pick one film to start their journey, if they're willing to take a journey through his filmography, what film would you tell them to start with? Oh, boy. Um well, I would have to think that his most celebrated film would be likely be Afterlife, but I think his most accessible and celebrated film would probably be Shoplifters, and and I think that's a great introduction into many of the themes that that carry throughout his films. It's it's a beautiful film to watch, and uh, you know I think I probably would go there. I mean, there there are so many other touching films that audience members who might not be accustomed to foreign language films might think are slow or boring or, you know, these everyday details of life aren't interesting to. Um, But Shoplifters, I think, you know, definitely keeps an audience uh, no matter whether you're used to watching foreign films or not. I would definitely agree. Well, I think... I think my first choreated film was probably like Father, like Son, because I I unfortunately missed... My Little Sister. My Little Sister, yes, I would say shoplifters or afterlife i don't know if it's the best film to start with but it's actually a lot of people's first film i would also say a special uh notice to still walking a lot oh sure yeah um that is that is very much i would say a um greatest hits film for a lot of people who enjoy here and now john i'm going to take this opportunity to say this because 
I have you trapped here and I guess you could just <laughs> run out of the studio. I just want to say thank you. I know it was my idea to originally resurrect this podcast, but I just want to say thank you for giving me the opportunity to do this podcast and to essentially take the last five years to work out a lot of thoughts um, <laughs> on air, but then also thank you for being a mentor and a friend and, you know, as someone who also does not, I, I have an artistic background in music, but do not have a background in arts administration or film or anything like that and came to this very naturally with a group of friends. Um, it's nice to have found someone who was a lot like me and someone that I can, you know, not follow their path, but at least, you know, take influence from the uh, path that they chose. And you are a, a big part of my life. And I thank you for everything you've ever done for me. Well, that's um, very sweet. Um, thank you, Asia. I, it's it's always a pleasure to hear you talk about film because the passion and the knowledge both you know they, they're they're such a good marriage there. And uh, no, it's 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 fun to listen to you. Um, and yes, don't follow in the footsteps of leaders or you know people you admire, but seek what they sought. Yes, that is all I do is to. Seek what you have been seeking. And okay. I know you're con and the, once again, we made jokes about this being your sunset years ago. Just for those who don't know, John, John is a tinkerer. He <laughs> has idle hand syndrome. He can't not do anything. So we haven't, we haven't seen the last of whatever John Vickers is going to do. So thank you for being on this podcast, John. Or Asia Essex. So thank you for having me. <laughs> Footage Not Found is a co-production of the Indiana University Cinema and WFIU Studios. Our theme song is Only Ones from the band Busman's Holiday off of their recently released album, Good Songs. You can currently stream Good Songs on Bandcamp, and you can find out more about the band on busmansholidayband.com, as well as by following them on Instagram at Busman's Holiday. You can follow the IU Cinema on Instagram, Twitter, Letterboxd, and Facebook at IU Cinema. You can follow me on Twitter at SamuraiFlix, on Letterboxd at Asia Essex, and on Instagram at Asia.Essex. That's A-J-A dot E-S-S-E-X. My name is Asia Essex, reminding you not to shy away from cinema because you just might find something you've been looking for. This has been Footage Not Found. Good night. Good night.